guest, a great poet, great artist, Will Gibson. Chicago, uh, 76 and King, and now I live in California. Uh, I've lived in Arkansas, Maine, Florida, New Mexico, Texas, uh, all over, and now I live in the most northern part of California that you can be in while still being in California. Uh, it's called Humboldt County. Uh, yes, I'm, I am uh, about an hour south of Crescent City. Uh, I am in Eureka, California. Uh, and uh, everything you've heard about Humboldt County is true. <laughs> All right, there you go. <laughs> it's, it is very nice in the summer. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to do some poems. I got my buddy Alex Horsbull with me. He's right over there waiting to. Um, he's also a poet. I'm going to have him read a, a poem or two, and he's going to... Uh, play some music behind some of my poems and we're going to hang out and we're going to have fun. It sound good? Yeah. All right, good, good, good. So, uh, when I was 10, I had this friend that we looked up to a lot, but whenever we were around each other, we did the dumbest shit and always got caught. I remember once him trying to dive out my bathroom window because my mom was going to whoop his ass. I was on the outside, so all I saw was this, ah! terrified face as she pulled him in and away from me. I haven't seen him in 20 years. You and he have the same color hair. When I was 15, I was seeing this girl and my father had forbidden me from being with her. So I called her and said, leave your front door unlocked. I'll be there just as soon as my father leaves for his 11 o'clock, 12 hour third shift. And as I was making my way across town, a policewoman stopped me to see where I was supposed to be. I gave my girlfriend's address as my own, and I watched as that tough-as-nails officer turned mother figure right in front of my eyes and gave me a ride the rest of the way. My first booty call had a police escort. <laughs> it's a true story. Uh, yeah, that's completely a true story. And you, right there, and that cop, have the same sweet face. Yes, you. That's a compliment, I swear. When I was 13, my mom was dying, waiting to be unplugged like a broken TV set. All the color and pictures that once filled her now gone, she couldn't move. And all I could do is stare at her purple swollen body through double pane Loyola ICU glass. A nurse noticed my anguish and said, hey kid, let me show you something I bet you don't know. Today, at sunset, your mom's gonna make the entire city of Chicago turn cold. I followed him the sixth floor, stairwell nine, we could see the entire skyline. He said, close your eyes and think of your favorite memory with your mother. And as I did, the sun sank behind us in the west, so when I opened my eyes, the city glowed like a jagged golden moon, and I knew my mom made it for me. At least on that day. Yeah. Walking back to the waiting room, we had made her impromptu home. I noticed the chapel, and I ducked inside, seeing no one. I began to pray out loud. I prayed as loud and as hard as a 13-year-old can. That's way harder than any adult can. I tried to tell God all the reasons I should be able to keep my mother. 
can't rationalize with God. I beg God to let me keep her. God doesn't like beggars. Leaving, I saw the same nurse in the back pew, still smiling. You and that nurse had the same smile. I haven't prayed much since that day, but for some reason, I like unanswered prayers. You are unanswered prayers. Silent, unspoken, personal wishes. Some sunsets come at midnight, others come at noon, and some give cities a golden heaven-sent hue. That's what they're supposed to do. You, you are all sunsets. Thank you. So uh, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna try this. Um, to be completely honest with you, uh, this is all improving. Uh, we we kind of did it last night um, in Pittsburgh. But that was really it. We were just, I was like, I'm gonna do this kind of poem. Do it, the thing. All right. And that was, that was really it. Um, so again, if it, if it sounds terrible, it's Tom's fault. Uh, yeah. If the woman crossing the street doesn't get hit by a car, she will smile at me as she passes this window. This is how things work here. They even smile at the homeless people here. They still don't give them any money, but they smile, which makes those people feel less guilt and more shame. I shiver in the sunshine here for the same reasons. I am homeless too, but people love me actively, so I get to sleep indoors most nights. Through the kindness of people, I can eat. This is as close to Marilyn Monroe as I will ever be. I have a job, though. At one payday, I gave a homeless woman I call God $10. God smiled at me. I didn't mean to give God $10. I wanted to give God a dollar, but gave God the wrong bill. I once gave God my leftovers, but she wouldn't eat until she knew I had enough to eat myself. God must be homeless because God is everywhere. I wonder if God feels like a single parent. The woman crossed the street. She smiled at me, like I knew she would. She didn't fall down or get hit by a car. She was full of balance and had the ability to stop her forward momentum from being a danger to herself. I wish I could do that. God likes menthol like I used to. 
do. Now I mostly smoke wood tip cigars and weed. The woman with the twisted fingers might be just another god with twisted fingers that no one cares about. I wanted God to love me. I want all gods to love me. I want everyone's God to love me. None of the women I thought were God could help me or love me. They were all just gods. I would have tried to help God, but like everyone else, I just wanted God to help me in return. And God doesn't need any help. God just needs love like all gods do. None of the women I've loved were God. All of the women I've loved were upside down maps. I tried to read until I realized women were not there for me to read or worship. I still love all of the women I thought were God, but were just gods. Most gods don't love me back anymore. Some gods still love me, but they are vengeful, angry gods, or invisible, neutral gods. My mother taught me to kneel before gods and to be patient because some gods don't answer prayers or text messages or Facebook messages. It isn't because they are ignoring you. It is that you are worshiping false idols. These are someone else's gods. I have spent most of my life worshiping someone else's gods. I have tried to worship a new god every day or worshiping many gods at once or worshiping myself. I have tried worshiping at altars, in my bed, in churches and synagogues. I felt close to God when I was a child and there was only one God to pray to. All children worship the same God. My God died in 1992. God is only a metaphor when she's a true lie. In this situation, God is a metaphor for my mother. And then I hate the word God. And then I hate God. And then I realize I can't. I can't hate anything that made me. I know God and God's made me who I am, flesh and ugly organs stretched over a bone like a drum, a drum God made. Was that? Yeah, that was okay. Yeah, that was yeah. all right. Good job, Tom. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad I had a good idea. <laughs> all right, now we're gonna try a different instrument. <laughs> uh, does anybody know who uh, the poet Jack Michelin is? Jack Michelin. Thank you. That I always ask that nobody ever knows who the fuck it is. It's my favorite writer of all time. Is Jack Michelin? Uh, Yes, he did. Um, he has one of my favorite quotes of all time about writing, uh, and it's kind of how I live my life. Uh, he said, I, I, I just went to a bar and hopped up on the, the pool table and read my poems, and either I got beat up or I made 50 bucks. Most of the time I made 50 bucks, and that's kind of what I do around the country. So... <laughs> Uh, like I said, I live in California right now. I'm a away from home. Uh, and so uh, I really appreciate these friendly faces. Thank y'all for coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. Softly at the ledges of buildings 
Traffic roars across Roosevelt. I just drank a Gatorade. It cost me four bucks. Oh, snow piles. Oh, gray skies. Where are the children? On the corners of huddled tweakers that shuffle past canals, soft red faces like clocks and mirrors. I see systems of boxes and beats on Metro. The sound rushes past my ears. This city has always been segregated and Rahm Manuel is a liar. The heads of bankers bounce down the street. The 21st century drags its feet and America is a bratty child. Men smile as I pass, eyes like moldy lemons. No idea what a poet is. I bounce from train to train and end up further from home than an arriving pilgrim. A 10-gallon hat passes with a garbage bag full of poems or clothes. Everything is a blanket on his shoulders. The mountains are as purple and white as one of my hometowns wished it was. The cover is melting. I am melting. I burn myself on myself and then burn my fingers too. My coat melts from a cigarette. I am ashamed that I smoke and more ashamed that I throw away. So I hold it softly while the embers fly onto my shirt and singe small black holes onto me while I get tired of metaphors. But still write a poem for one of the brothers I adopted on the back of a fast food napkin. It went, you were asleep while the stars drove. I wish I could have watched what you dreamt. Traffic was a closed fist. He wakes up and I don't tell him. A dog barks and I wish he was in the family. I wish everyone was family, but everything dies or can die. My family is too big to die. We do it anyway. We do it often. I realize I've been to Denver four times in three weeks. And not once have I made love to a California redwood tree near a Colorado mountain stream. I see my teeth fall out. I want to see her dress draped over the back of a wooden chair out of the corner of my eye 
I can see what it was like to take off her dress and drape it over the back of a wooden chair while we make love. The thunderstorms drown out the horizon and I wish her hand was on my thigh. We are a grain elevator. She shows me the center of the map is less about hate and more about the empty way the bank tells you that your future is a can of evaporated milk. Explains that the lost coast is a scar, is a healed wound. And I am an unused gun, an empty jail. She is a blunt object. I am bruised ego, oh Emerald Hills, oh Broken Bay. Tell the children what a poet is. When they ask me, I have no answers. I just watch the sun shine through fog like a flashlight. chapbooks uh, and I've got a full length uh, collection called Harvest the Dirt done through Great Weather for Media. Uh, the chapbooks um, are $10 a piece. You can get both for $15 or you can get all three things for $30. Um, and I have a new book coming out May 24th. This is the proof. Uh, so it's not even the real book yet. Uh, this is the proof that I'm still reading through to make sure there are no mistakes in. Uh, it's called Quitting Smoking, Falling In and Out of Love and Other Thoughts About Death. Uh, right? I was, I was proud of myself. I was yeah. proud of myself. I wrote that down. I was like, oh, that's going to be the title because that's funny as shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really proud of both of the full lengths. Uh, the chat books, everything in the chat books is stuff from here. Um, that's just not released yet. So I did it because they're taking too long. <laughs> they're really not. Like, it's just me being impatient, I think. Um, but yeah, um, I I wasn't going to read this poem, but y'all seem cool. So we're going to share a moment here. This is a true story. This is This is a very true story. Everything I write, I'm obsessed with the idea of truth. I have it tattooed on my body in two languages. I am obsessed with the idea of truth. So you won't hear me bullshitting, right? So, <clears throat> here we go. I once literally shit my pants when an ex-girlfriend told me she had been cheating on me for months. Not a full load of shit. Just enough to fake a need to run to the bathroom and fake crying. I never told her the real reason why I had to run to the bathroom. And she never told me why she had been cheating on me for months. I also never told her why I had to run to the bathroom or that I used her toothbrush to scrub the shit stains out of my underwear. 
or why I wouldn't kiss her goodbye. We all have our secrets. Uh, if you didn't like that poem, find Magdalene on Facebook and tell him that he's an asshole. All right. Uh, I have epilepsy. Uh, it's nothing really true about me other than it's a thing that happens once in a while. Um, and I was with this, this person for a while and uh, she was less than supportive of my health issues. In fact, told me that my seizures make her feel trapped. <laughs> to the woman who said, your seizures make me feel trapped. At times, my world is gone. I do not exist. I become a large, twitching dust bunny, unaware of the contents of brain and bladder. I am movement without purpose or explanation or reason. I am gone. I'm almost always gone or I don't exist. You never don't exist. I could never explain this lack of time to you. There is no understanding this senseless twitch. You have too few years for this medicine. This medication might be too young for you. This roar too loud for your precious ears. These sandpaper hands too rough for your porcelain skin. You will never know this uncomfort at the sight of stairs. This nervous bathing and swimming, this piss-soaked fear of my every day. I am aware that your thought scares you more than my mind could ever allow itself to absorb. If I lived in that fear, I would never leave the house again. Trap myself in soft foam and become the stain on the kitchen floor. You have never been just a stain. I have marked myself a beast as bad as any label or hatred you could force at my melted feet. All those I love yous met with cold shoulders and I'm fucking sleepings will drown and float like the dead weight that it is. You wanted a reason to listen as much as I wanted a reason to be treated like an unwanted house guest. Your bitterness, a wasted window in this unsmogged gray town. I am not a torn boxing glove for your broken hand. You cannot hold anything until you heal. You have never been good at holding on to things. Hmm. So, I have no idea why I had to read that book. Oh yeah, I do. She messaged me on Facebook last night. <laughs> I like this guy. Oh shit! I didn't say it. He said it. Remember that. I'm taking all the blame tonight. It's all on him. He did all of it. <laughs> I like that. Um, all right, poem about. Actually, no. Grab that thing. Come back up here. Yeah. That thing. That thing. One of them things over. I. I he said in the bio, I am from Northern Illinois and Eastern Arkansas. If you didn't know I was a hillbilly before, now you do. Like, I'm a hillbilly as hell. Like, I, yeah. So, um, I would say one more.
be my way to remind you that I know we can stop wars, but we can't stop time. So this is uh, kind of part two to that, actually. That was towards the beginning of the relationship. And this is the end of the relationship. <laughs> she said, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't know how to change. And she looked at me the way a carburetor looks at a mechanic. I'm not sure how to help you, I said, trying not to let her see that I know nothing about cars. Anytime my vehicles had broken down, I left them sputtering on the side of the road. Someone else's problems. That's how I know how to fix things. I go. She was once the feathers and hollow bones that allowed me to fly. And while my heart soared around in the sky, she stayed firmly rooted to the ground, surrounded by her thick, icy walls. She swore she did no maintenance on that they would crumble with time. And I had to remind her that walls this great can last generations and be handed down involuntarily to children. I know that time is precious, especially to those of us who don't feel we have it. And neither of us had ever had a love that's lasting. My boy Nano used to tell me I'd die before I turned 27. And he was 26 when he went to heaven. And now I'm over 30. Over 30, and that's on time that doesn't feel like mine, because 30 is how old my mom was when she died. My family's foundation was built on my back, land once owned by a nation of two. Too bad the housing market collapsed and the social stock market crashed. I used to look at her and know I'd never stay clean. She was my drug, I knew I'd always OD, never knew when I'd had enough. She was my angel dust, my long, slow dream. And I used to say, I hope I don't wake up too soon because I want to know what this one means and I want you to know too. And do you love me anymore, she said. And I replied, no. But I don't love you any less either. <laughs> and I could see that those kind of puns can be painful, that words hurt worse than burns every single time, even if it's some shitty recycled movie line from the 50s. So I blame her past, knowing full well it's only half the story. So I always end up saying the same things, imagining I've acquired some refined knowledge because the schools I went to required bruises, broken hearts, and bones and didn't get me no sheepskin diploma or direct me to college, but at least I don't have any student loans. I want to tell her she's more than hollow bones and feathers. She's that last loving shove from the nest that shows me I can fly. I want to say I belong here, handing you the tools to fix your own goddamn carburetor. I want to say insecurities are our masters, but we hold the keys to set ourselves free. But I don't say any of these things because I'm afraid of sounding too much like a poet. So I say I don't know how to help you anymore. And she says nothing. Just hugs me. Breathing instead of speaking. She's never spoken so loudly. I've never slept so soon.
actually, instead of taking a break, Alex, why don't you do a poem right now? So, yeah, Alex, um, Alex and I met, this deserves a little bit, Alex and I met years ago, I used to run a reading in Portland, Maine, uh, and Alex showed up. That's how we met. And we've been very good friends ever since then. I call him my little brother. Like, this is my dude, right? Like, he's he's smarter than most people. Uh, probably, like, miles smarter than me. He's a scientist and shit. He dabbles in poetry. And when you hear, you'll be mad that he just dabbles in poetry. Because he's, he's a phenomenal writer. Um, and good musician and a fucking scientist and everything. My man's cool. So y'all clap for Alex Horsley. How's it going? So I'm doing a thing that most modern people do now, which is read a poem off the phone, so I apologize. Um, we can't do that here. If you don't do that here, I'm sorry. I'm coming in, I'm screwing up your scene. Um, this is. I think she meant apologize. I don't think she meant read off the phone. Well, I'm sorry. This is a new piece that I've been working with, so uh, bear with it. I've spent so much time there that highways make me uncomfortable like empty vacuum cleaners. The asphalt has molded to my feet and I track pieces of it everywhere to spread some perspective. There are so many people without perspective. I spend six days of my week teaching people how to open their ATM faces. To hear million dollar questions and spill wealths of information, I tell them that they will make me rich one day in the hopes that they will cash in on the out of branch fees of a population that cannot think for themselves. I am discouraged that we cannot think for ourselves. We are needed by unwashed hands in bagel shops by, owned by CNN and Fox. We have become so soft. We have become so soft that babies could shit inside of us and not know the difference. We have failed to recognize that we are covered in our own reticence. We have neglected to acknowledge our autobiographical receipts, our paper-thin soles, and the feeling of dollar bills underfoot. Lick my rocky feet. Trip over my perspective like your first dime bag. Show yourself the intricacies of an uneven sidewalk and how small you are in reality. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying you're a Pennsylvania highway. I'm saying you're a complacent. I'm saying that you're maybe, might, could, would, should, possibly, eventually, slightly. I'm saying you're as flat as glass ceilings. And you and your flatness give meaning to each piece of ignorance rising from your flat molars when you don't brush the silence off your teeth. Have you ever seen a street corner? Have you ever checked your feet? Have you never been angry enough to grind your teeth? Let me teach you. Populate your life with streetlights and storm drains. Let them show you how to shine light into the worst kind of weather. Understand that the sound of everything crashing around you is still a sound. Learn that your sound is your voice, that your voice is only as powerful as your footsteps, that your footsteps cannot exist without the effort of moving your feet, that the effort of your moving your feet must turn you on, that turning you on means you are ready to go. Go open your faces, project your voice, gain some perspective, Show the, sell the world on the perspective of change. Thank you. Can you tell that American English is his second language? 
I've been saving that joke all day. You have no idea. We've driven from Pittsburgh today, and I've been saving that joke all day. Uh, he actually, American English is technically his second language. He's from England. So he speaks the Queen's. Well, Monty, you freaking dumb. But, yeah, no, he's, he's not that type of Englishman, though. He's cool. Uh, yeah, no, we, we had a nice long discussion about dual citizenship and the fact that he doesn't pay taxes in uh, the UK. And uh, somehow I was like, that's fucking cool. You know, I don't know why, but it really was to me. Um, all right, yeah, uh, I'm going to do a couple more here and then I'll bring Alex back up here to close out the night. Sound good? We having fun? Yeah. Yeah? All right. Um, yeah. Anybody uh, have panic attacks in here? <laughs> You're poets, it should be all of you. Um, yeah, um, I'm pretty much halfway done up here, which means I'm about halfway through a panic attack. Um, and for me, when I, when I panic, I have to find ways to bring myself back, to ground myself in reality. And my way of doing that is to think of things that happened real things that happened, no matter how fucked up they are, like everything that is real, no matter what. Um, good memories, bad memories. So this poem is, is what I use. This is basically the anatomy of my panic attacks. Remember the light dancing off the frozen weeping willow tree branches, how the wind snapped some of the dangling limbs, how they fell like ropes from a broken gym ceiling. Remember the gym ceiling breaking apart. The look on the child's screaming face after the plaster, thud, crash, all of the smashing lights, the blood. Remember every drop of blood. How the splatter looked like a Jackson Pollock painting. Remember the Jackson Pollock painting you touched. The feel of the paint and the canvas. The grip of the security guard when he saw you touch. The priceless art. The large mole on his cheek. The menning look like Robert De Niro. That Robert De Niro is not Al Pacino. Remember Carlito's way. Remember seeing your mother reading the book Carlito's way with a light danced off the frozen weeping willow tree branches. Remember your mother. Remember. Remember her saying, real men stand and fight, better men shake hands. Remember to shake hands, that hands shake. If you hold on too tightly, the shaking can be silenced by listening. Remember listening to Al Green with your mother while the willow branches wept, that it was so cold, the tears froze and fell like ropes from a broken gym ceiling. Remember the gym ceiling breaking apart. The child falling from the gym ceiling that his name was Jared. Remember the name Jared. Remember that the only man you've made love to is named Jerry. That having sex isn't making love. That making love is like falling in love. That falling in love is like falling from a broken gym ceiling in front of the entire school. No one brave enough to help the blood stop pouring out of your forehead and dripping off of your nose. Remember the blood dripping off of Jared's nose the only time you are brave enough to kiss him in public. How the mosh pit turned red with blood and shock and hate. How you left him that night. How fear made you go. Remember leaving. Remember the blood, remember the gym rope, remember the frozen weeping willow tree branches while it snowed and the tree shook, that you shook hands with the president before he was president, that real men shake hands, that your mother told you he'd be president. Remember everything your mother told you. Remember what Marcy told you, what you first met, and never tell anyone what it was. 
ever. Remember the look on his mother's face as your son was born, as the sun was born over the Ozarks while he cried and calmed in your arms while you danced with him. Remember to dance slowly with your daughter at a wedding and to Al Green when the willow trees weep, freeze, and fall like ropes from a broken gym ceiling. Sports fans in here? Yeah. All right. That's all right. It doesn't matter. You don't. You, you just need to know this person, and everyone in the world knows this person. David Ortiz. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. Everyone, including outside of New England. So it is Nick Hoffman. All right. All right. All right. I walked right in. That was good. That was good. This is actually a short story, but it's real short. Like, so I just like the story, so here it is. It's called The Right Foot of God. God and poop has been a lot in this set, and I'm sorry for that. Like, a little. Not, no, I don't care. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, right, so it's called The Right Foot of God. They call us towel boys. Rich kids were usually asked to do the job, but sometimes they let one of us poor kids wipe up sweat in the court during basketball games at Chicago Stadium. The job consisted of making sure the floor itself was dry enough that the players wouldn't fall as the game was played. I was taken to my position under the basket on the arena floor next to a throng of photographers and media types who could see the gravity of my moment. I felt important. I did not feel like an imposition or a burden. I had a job to do, I mattered. Each of the referees came by to let me know what was expected of me in my new position, all saying some form of mop up the sweat, be fast, stay the hell out of the way and pay attention. In the second quarter, two of the largest men you could imagine flesh and blood to be collided near the hoop and therefore close to me. They fell in a momentum-driven slide, smearing sweat and spit across the floor, and the crowd all said, ooh, at the exact same time, and the whistle shrieked, and I froze. I did not know what to do. One referee saw my stillness smirked out of the right side of his mouth and yelled, hey, that's you, while pointing at the errant perspiration, and the players walked behind him back to their benches for a TV timeout before the free throws. I bounded into action. I made two small, clockwise, dry circles with my towel, and on the next went wide. I hit a dry spot, and the towel seemed to stick, and it made my hand flop awkwardly across the floor. As I brought my hand back toward my body, it grazed lightly across the left foot of a pair of red, black, and gray shoes. Michael Jordan looked down at me, winked, and grinned as I bowed at his feet. When you meet your God, they will know it is a big deal to you. If you are lucky, they might even acknowledge your worship. Let's get 
It's gonna be real loud, and I'm good with it. Let's do it. Let's be loud. Y'all can hear me over that saxophone, right? Yeah. Okay. Good. I'll just get close to the microphone. Thank y'all for coming out. I really appreciate it. Uh, and Tom, thank you for having me in. Uh, it's, it's really an honor. It's the first time I've ever uh, read poems in Albany, aside from in front of the train station. Uh, but then the security guards told me to leave and shit. Like, it was weird. Uh, I was like, I can't. I'm actually on the next train. <laughs> so, I'm uh, any minute now. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I really appreciate y'all having me out and being so attentive and, and, and patient and smiling and shit and not making me feel like I suck. So thank you for that. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to hang out here. Come talk to us about the books and things or just things in general because uh, I don't bite unless you ask. Uh, then you have to ask really nicely. Okay? So, right. Uh, all right, let's try this. Are you still working? Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. I just don't know. I don't know music, so I just say, "Hey, Alex, fucking do it. Make it happen. Make mu make music. <laughs> then I'll I'll yell something around it. It'll be fine." <laughs> there we go. That's, That's it. Better. That's the sound. Um, yeah. So I have a, a class of students, and they kept asking me, "How do you be a writer?" So this is for my students who ask me how to be a writer. It's a short. Spring and be angry and 
raised every autumn when it's not stuck to the windshield of your first car. Set hearts with notebooks and microphones. Sharpen them. Want objects only brutes. They don't break. Imagine God in your strong hand. She wrestled until lightning crashes, simulating your palm and poetic device in your spleen until eyes open like pickle jars and lips apart, singing sober heart murmur, televise your revolution. <laughs> Better still tweet your revolution. That's the only way you'll be seen, but in five years that advice will be obsolete. I'm sorry. Edit. Edit our mistakes with your smiles, your strengths, your weaknesses, your poems, yourself. Edit the world. Edit. Give it up for Will Gibson and Alex Arale. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. I mean, yeah. Sounds mighty. So, um, well, I don't know if you read the second half of the memo. Um, now, now we do our, our Q&A session. Okay. Yeah, so come back. You know, oh, it'd be shit. nice if everyone like came up a little bit closer, then oh, we, we could hear everybody. Because we're going to do a little, little Q&A. Okay. Like we did for you, Dan, when, know, when you I were know. the feature. I can talk loud. Okay. okay. All right. So. What? No, I'm, I'm so. talking now. <laughs> Lauren. All right. Thank so you. we're just going to yell. Okay. Because that's what we do. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was, was great. Fun. This was, was fantastic. That was great. Uh, you laughed at our Nick Bachwinkle joke. Um, you you, you yeah, laughed at a David Ortiz joke. So obviously, you know, you know what you're doing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I lived in Portland, Maine for 10 years, so I, I definitely know New England. And I'm a pro wrestling nerd, so the Nick Bachman. <laughs> I grew up on the AWA. So Crush your Jerry Packwell. Thank you. you uh, <laughs> Where's Rock and Roll Bug Zumwa? Uh, <laughs> there in Potter Ashby. Yeah, Oh, <laughs> I said yeah. Moondog spot. That oh, was my guys. That was my guys. Moondog spot. Yeah, that right? Spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, I remember Kurt Henning's first match. Oh, for God's sake! You know what I'm saying? Like I remember the very first. Was time. it with his father, Larry the Axe? Yes, yes, it was. was. Larry Henning. Yes, it was. So yeah, <laughs> you know, just nerded out completely. All right. <laughs> he got, you know, uh, uh, Nick and I got yelled at at a dinner party the other night for doing this exact thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, they should spike. We, we are not allowed to talk about wrestling anymore at supper parties. You're not allowed. <laughs> I'm not allowed. <laughs> but anyway, thanks for coming to Albany. This is, this is awesome. We've been trying to get you here for... Like two years, yeah. yeah actually, it's, like it's, two it's years. Been a while, yeah, so yeah. Uh, crossing emails and crossing timelines yeah. and just things don't line up. Sometimes. And then you moved to California. And so then I moved to California, so then it wasn't so easy anymore. <laughs> you messed everything up. For us. I did. I'm sorry. So, but great set, Thanks. awesome stuff. I, you know, reading your bio, reading about you, doing research is, you know, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, instead of writing now, I decided to <laughs> take a step back and do everything else. Right. But, but right. So I, I so many similarities between you and I, and, and you know, the, and I was driving my my cousin home last night, and we were driving through a really shitty part of Troy, New York, and Lansingburg, Mary knows right where it is, next to the boatyard on First Avenue, in this rundown ranchable house that I lived in, that I grew up in. I'm like, hey Matt, this is where I, grew up. <laughs> and he's like. Like, like, 
Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. like my mom was working. Like, that's that's where the title of the book, Harvest of the Dirt, comes from. Like, it comes from the idea of being proud of where you come from, no matter what dirty place it was, no matter how terrible a place it was. It's it's about being proud of where you come. I'm white trash. Like I'm, I'm very proud to be white trash because I survived. And I'm, I'm less white trash now, but I think there's always an element in there. It's right? always yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's in there. I mean, it's part of you, it's right? When I'm at the gas wall. station and I buy Twinkies, then I know that there's still that white <laughs> trash in me. <laughs> <laughs> and and when I bought what was the soda that I bought? Uh, candy apple soda. Candy apple Fago today. Oh my god! Oh. Just because that uh, was it sounded awesome. And then I got it, and we got it into the car, and I cracked it like that. I not even all the way open, which like that, and instantly the whole car smelled like it. <laughs> no! it like yeah, you know something is terrible for you if it is that pungent, right? Like unless it's weed, then it's fine. Yeah, yeah. that's another. <laughs> that's a whole other another story for another day, <laughs> or after the show. After the show. After the show. <laughs> but no, absolutely. You, you carry it with you and you make it part of, you know, who you are. And, right. and you know, I did it in, in my writing years. Um, you know, like I told you about the trucker piece. Yes. You know, I wasn't a trucker. But this idea of, you know, being that humble yeah. guy driving, doing his I'd job. I'd be really interested in day. seeing or hearing or reading that piece because I, I was a truck mm-hmm. driver for two years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my whole family's truck drivers. Okay. Like all of us. So it's the family tradition I had to. Um, and so I got a job with J.B. Hunt right out of, uh, nice. went to school and, and did that whole thing. Got a job with J.B. Hunt and Schneider. And then uh, my uncle was driving for Burlington. So I switched jobs like four times. And finally I was working for TMC, which is those big, beautiful black freight liners that you see everywhere. They are gorgeous. The reason they're so gorgeous is because you have to wash them twice a day. Or you get fined through the company a thousand dollars for every single infraction so if you didn't wash your truck twice a day you could lose a thousand dollars a day if they saw your truck on the road and it was dirty that was a thousand dollar fine it was insane I, and i got caught once with a dirty yeah, truck and i was like i'm done i'm not doing this anymore that's crazy and i've just driven 14 hours without sleep, and now, because my truck was a little dirty, but then you get mad at me if I'm not on time. So now I'm done with this. You can't win. You can't win. So so through all this, when, and I ask this of everyone, when did you put pen to paper? When did you start writing? When did you decide that, you know, this is going to be your outlet? Well, when, when, as far as I can remember, I've written stories and things like that, but when I was nine years old, uh, I read Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, and my mom handed it to me, and I'll, I'll never forget, it was like, I think it was 9.17 in the morning. Uh, I actually have it written down somewhere. Um, she handed it to me. By 3.15 in the afternoon, I had finished it, and I was nine years old. I, I just wow. could not stop. It was so good, it's so dark, and so funny, and all of these things mixed. And so when I finished it, I went up and I handed it back to her. I said, I'm a writer, and that was it, that was, that was it. I, I've really done that since then. Uh, I mean, I, I played basketball in high school. I had scholarships and everything. I blew my knee out. Uh, but I always wrote. You know, I was still writing anyway. Uh, and then I was a homeless drug addict for 10 years. And uh, I was yelling poems out on the street corner. And I didn't realize that behind me was a coffee shop. Yeah. And they had the door open and they had a poetry reading going on inside. Yeah, with an actual yeah. mic. And I'm ah, on the street calling my hat out, you know. 
And they come out and say, hey, shut the fuck up or come inside. One or the other, I went inside. And here we are. That, that kind of gets us here, I think, because that's pretty much everything. <laughs> you know? Uh, once I started realizing that I could read my poems in front of people and other people wanted to, I didn't have to force them to out right. on the street, uh, it was over. You know, I, I got a job doing this, um, you know, writing workshops and things like that in high schools. And you know, it's, it perpetuates itself. So this is what you do. This, this is, is it. I don't have another job. This is this is my job. This is my life. That's awesome. This tour is four months long. Uh, it's uh, I, I said the number yesterday. Sixty-one shows. Uh, yeah, sixty-one shows in ninety days. Plus, I volunteered at Wouts. Uh, and, and took, I've taken two weeks off so far to visit my son mm -hmm. uh, and visit my baby brother in uh, Richmond. So uh, I've already taken two weeks off. That's pretty much all of my time off yeah. for the rest of the tour. Yeah, uh, it's it, you got to, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, all of June, I have uh, 28 shows in 30 days. Uh, 28 shows, 30 days in 13 different states. Holy um, cow. Yeah, it's going to be stupid. It's going to be stupid. Wow! But I just said I'm, I'm very excited. I just said I'm, the last one uh, is is June 30th at a bookstore in Bozeman, Montana, uh, which yeah. is like basically the exit or entrance, depending on how you view it, of Yellowstone. So like mm -hmm. I'm gonna do the whole thing, and then I'm going fucking Yellowstone. I never I never like spent time in Yellowstone. Yeah. Like I've, I've driven by and I went through once, but I was in a hurry. Mm -hmm. So now I'm gonna spend the rest of the week. And Yellowstone and camp and stuff. This can be great. Yeah. Audience, any questions? For yes, Dan Wilcox. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I heard you mention well, just after running it. I heard you mention uh, Jack Michelin. Mm -hmm. Oh no. And uh, who, were, who were some of the other poets that were like or writers in general who were, were formative for you? Uh, Stuart Dybeck. Uh, Stuart Dybeck is one of the biggest for me. Uh, I, I have absorbed everything the man has written. And uh, I mean, I first read uh, The Coast of Chicago. It's a short story collection. Uh, but it, I mean, it's so poetic that it's basically a book of poems. Uh, if you haven't read that, it's, it's amazing. I, I promise you, you will not regret reading that book. I, I promise you. Uh, so amazing. So anything Stuart Dybeck does, uh, I even tried to go, I hate, I'm from Illinois, I hate Michigan, Michigan State, right? Like, I hate those schools, but I wanted to go to Michigan State because he teaches there, all right? That's the only reason I wanted to go, is just to take one class from Stuart Dybeck. <laughs> um, you know, and I mean, obviously, Gil Scott-Heron, uh, I think anybody that reads poems out loud is influenced by Gil Scott-Heron, and if they say they're not, they're, they're a liar, uh, because it's, it's like a rock band saying that they're not influenced by the Beatles. You know, yeah, you are. Even if you don't realize you are, yeah, you are. You know, uh, and Gil Scott Heron is one of those cats that that took music, and poetry, and and spoken word and blended it into a really beautiful thing. So anybody that does this is you know is ripping him off a little bit. You know, um, and I mean the beats are a big thing to me, but uh, honestly, more than any, this is, uh, uh, more than anyone else, Tom Waits. Uh, I don't know if you can tell from the way I dress, but I'm a little obsessed with Tom Waits. Uh, and I mean, my, my singing voice is close to his, but mine's, mine's on accident. He does that shit on purpose. You know, like I just sound that way. <laughs> but yeah, 
so probably Tom Waits as far as like just straight up my my go-to inspiration person. Uh, I, I he introduced me to the Beat Generation, uh, you know, because he has that song Jack and he'll go to California, and you know that that introduced me to the Beats, and that was it. So yeah. Um, and there's probably a thousand more, like Patricia Smith, like who's not influenced by Patricia Smith over the last 20 years. You know, like, uh, um, and even Mark Smith, I hate that guy, but tell him I said that if you see him, tell him Will Gibson said he's an asshole, because um, that will make me feel happy inside. Uh, and he'll laugh because he's my kind of asshole. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, Jason Carney, uh, some contemporary cats, Jason Carney, Stevie Edwards, um, Actually, mostly the contemporary people that I'm influenced by are, are mostly female. Uh, Fatima Asgar from uh, Chicago. Um, she's phenomenal. Uh, Adrian Sunshine and Doe from Chicago is amazing. Uh, yeah, the, nowadays women poets are, are on another level, I feel like. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a little of that. So I'm trying to keep up with, with them, you know. Yeah. Yes? Do, I don't know a lot about poetry other than following it every April. So, do poets take um, or do you recommend formal training or do, say, be poets like Luke Housley, etc.? Is it more life experience? How much, what's that balance between what I'm going to take this class or read this book? And just. Me personally? Life experience because I just, I just got my associates and all I did was show them my resume and they said, oh, we'll give you a life experience associates. So, for me, life experience because I didn't even go to college. Like, I went, ran out of money, and then stopped going, you know? So, but as, as a street poet, as a, and that's where I come from, that's who I am, uh, as a street poet, um, I, I read way more than any college student has, okay? I, I've, when, when I start talking with college students and they bring up any book that they've been made to read or enjoyed reading or anything, I have read that book. I, I, I read three books a week on average, uh, and that's not counting poetry because I don't count reading poetry as reading books because I do that constantly, uh, all day, every day. You know, uh, I, I'm always reading somebody, trying to learn, trying to understand why they did this as opposed to this, or why they worded it this way as opposed to this way. Uh, yeah, and, I mean, Alex and I from uh, Pittsburgh to here, I'd say at least, at least half the car ride was talking about poetry, you know. So, um, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed uh, with poetry. Uh, I have been you know, since I can remember. So, yeah, uh, I, I again, I would say life experience, but that's that's only informed by my experience, right? So I, I couldn't say that to anybody else. I, I, I mean, Alex is uh, is uh, formally trained, right? and he's genius. Like he's, he's a straight up genius. You know? Sorry, to embarrass you. Sorry, but like it's it's true. Like he's he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. You know, and, and he has a, a formal training. The cat's only twenty four years old. It blows my mind. Right when he starts talking these scientific things, I'm like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. You know, that's that's really cool. To me, you know, so his way worked for me. My way really worked for me. I wouldn't have been able to succeed otherwise because we didn't have the money for me to go to college. I was working four jobs trying to go to college and still had to sell drugs. 
like threw up and you know, then I ran out of money after one one year. So I couldn't say that this more formal training is the best way to go, but I couldn't not say that either. So I think it just depends on the person. I love your metaphors and similes like eyes open like pickle jars. Uh, and I wrote down some other ones. Um, do you revise your metaphors and similes? Constantly. Or they come? Constantly. Uh, I the reason I wrote that last poem for my students is because I am <laughs> I am a voracious editor. Uh, I'll write eight pages, the poem might be half a page by the time I'm done. Like I don't want any bullshit. I don't need it. I, I don't have time for it. I, I I want exactly what I want to say exactly on the page. If it's not, then I still have editing to do. Uh, before I show any of, I have five editors that I use. I have five, and and uh, three of them are editors from my publishing company. Okay. Uh, and then two of them are just friends of mine that I know are not going to tell me. Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah. You know, because those are liars. They are lying to you when they say that. Mm. If they say, "Oh, it's great," then they didn't read it. They didn't care, right? Uh, the people I, I use are guys I go on tour with, and they have straight up. I have sent Bo and Ryan uh, eight-page poems, and they said, "Just throw it out. It's it's just no good. Like you, you just you just failed miserably. So try again." You know, and I I don't take any offense when they say that because I know what they mean. I write for three hours, usually for three hours every day. If you know, I when you're on tour, you're able to? Not always when I'm on tour. Not Try. always when I'm on tour. Today I didn't get to write anything at all, and you can tell I can't sit still. I'm a little nervous. It's part of my OCD thing. I, I didn't get to write today, so I don't feel right. You know? Um, and that, that's pretty much that way. Even if I'm just typing it on my phone real quick, you know, some little lines. Well, then I guess I did write a little bit. I, I, <laughs> Now that I think about it, I wrote like a five-line little poem. Today, uh, just on my phone, just type it out. You know, but it, I, I don't think that's the writing process. I think that's the inspiration process. You know, the writing process. Any fool can write anything down, right? You can write a bunch of shit down. It's any any moron can do that. You don't write until you edit. When, when you're editing, that's when the writing process starts because you're actually doing the work behind the poem. Uh, and, but again, some poems just come right out, you know, and, and there's no editing them. You can try, but then you ruin them sometimes, you know. Um, I have a couple of poems that way. I have one for my daughter that's that way. Um, it's like the saddest thing in the world, but it, it's, you know, it's it, it just came out. And I, I never tried to memorize it. I never tried to write it down, really. I just knew it. I just, I knew it. It's, it's weird when those things happen, but they do happen. Rare. Otherwise, though, I edit five times before I send it to anyone. You know, and sometimes they'll say, "Let me see an earlier draft of this," and I'll send them back. And <laughs> they'll tell me you went too far. <laughs> but yeah, editing is, is. I'm very passionate about that. When I do high school or college workshops, I hand out my email and say, "Send me your poems. I'll edit them." But if you send it to me. Be ready for the truth about how I feel about it. Don't you be upset. But yeah, don't be mad at me when yeah. I tell you, hey, the whole second stanza is shit. You need to get rid of that. You just wasted your time with that. Like, you know, move the third or fourth round. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm always willing to do that. But I'm just some dude, so my opinion don't 
matter. If you don't like what I say, don't do it. You know, like, it's your poem. You know it better than I do. You know, you know what you're trying to say more than I do. But it's always good. Nobody's a good writer in a vacuum. You know, you have to have somebody to bounce the words off of. And I do it with everybody. Anybody that listens. Thank you. Bob Sharkey. Yeah, I, as a kid, I grew up in Boyle, Maine, in the Living Downstairs. Oh, right on. Uh, just kind of wondering uh, if your 10 years in Portland made any uh, impression on the art or on you at all. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Portland, Maine is one of the most artistic cities I've ever lived in. Uh, it's, it's, I say in Chicago, no place in the world mixes art and sports like Chicago does, right? Portland mixes art the way art and sport mix in Chicago, all of it. Music, uh, visual art, uh, dancing, any kind of dance, poetry, everything. Everything is mixed. Everybody knows each other and everybody works with each other. Uh, I started a nonprofit there that's still hopefully going strong. Uh, I don't live there, I don't know. Uh, you know, but they, we, we did a lot of work inside schools, uh, you know, because. I view art in general like I think of smoking, you know, going while they're young and you know, they'll always be there, you know. And, and uh, you know, Portland is one of those cities that that stick with you. Yeah, yeah you know, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's stuck with you as well, you know. Yeah, it's it's one of those cities. And uh, I mean, I actually lived in the Livingstown area right across the street from the hospital for a little bit. Uh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, but I mostly lived up on the hill. Yeah, that's mostly it was my hill. Yeah, I used to tell people I'm the mayor of the hill. All right. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my hill. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Portland's great. Anybody, uh, everybody should visit. It's uh, Portland's great town. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Very good. Yeah, so wonderful. Love them absolutely. Dolly, could you talk a little bit? Do you travel a lot? Yeah, it seems. Um, and do you find a lot of differences in different communities? Oh, are more people, you know, because we're lucky in Albany that we get comfortable now. Right? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Let me break it down so it can more and consistently be broken. Uh, every single city is different. Every single city is different. There is a different influence at every turn in every city. Uh, Pittsburgh is informed uh, a lot of by the industry that's there that was there. Uh, we were talking about uh, we were talking about that earlier. Uh, Pittsburgh is very much a uh, even artistically an industrial blue collar city, and they're very proud of that. Right, so you don't end up with a lot of Sestinas in the open mic, right? You don't end up with a lot of uh, a lot of Gazals in the open mic. Nobody's reading a pantoum and slam. You know what I'm <laughs> like that's that ain't going down. Okay. But in places like Portland, Maine, you will see that. You will see gazelles and, and all of that in the slam, right? <laughs> people are like, is that a pantomime? <laughs> you know, it's awesome. It's great to see. You know, exactly. That's really what it people like, is this? Like, what we, are we stuck in something that I didn't know was happening? You know, that, that happens. Um, in Boise, Idaho, everybody's funny. Every poet is trying to be funny. Even if they're not, they're trying really hard to be. Uh, in El Paso, uh, there is so much uh, of the Latino community 
driving the city itself that the poetry community is obviously driven that way too. You know, um, uh, uh, I haven't done LA yet, so I'll tell you in May. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but Bellingham, Washington, for instance, uh, 150,000 people right up by the border has absolutely no similarities whatsoever to Seattle. They are so far apart artistically and just as towns. No, there's no similarities there, right? But they're what, an hour and a half away from each other, you know? Uh, same with Olympia in Seattle. Uh, Olympia poets go to Seattle and they feel out of place sometimes, right? But that's, again, Olympia is much more of a dirty, grimy place than Seattle is, right? Like, Seattle's so fun! It's so fun and happy and clean and Olympia's not. Like, it's, it's fucked up. Like, there, I mean, the first time I did a show there, uh, I got into town, walked around the venue, and when I went uh, back by the front door after doing all the way around the venue, uh, in between the time that I had walked past it the first time and gotten back to it again, someone had sat down and started shooting up right next to the front door, right? Olympia's weird. <laughs> Olympia's a weird little town, you know? Um, but each, each place is so drastically different from the other that I think, I think, that has made me a better writer, seeing all of these different sounds and these different styles. And if you're not out doing it, if you're not seeing all of these places or, or talking to people in these different places, you don't get that influence. You know, you don't get that influence at all. And you know, I, I feel like uh, the Bay Area has influenced some of my writing, um, obviously not as much as living in Chicago or Memphis or, or Portland, you know, not as, not as much as those places. But it definitely has informed because I've been to a lot of readings and I've heard that crowd. So uh, it really does depend where you're at, but every place has a sound of its own. Every place. Questions, comments? Thank you so much for being here.